0: The reading of the Sioux City Journal for the weekend of February 10th and 11th. Uh, we'll begin with the mini editorial. This is uh, written this time by Jeannie Theobald of Mapleton, Iowa. And Jeannie writes, Add party to school and city candidates? Thank goodness our Iowa legislators are working hard to create solutions for non problems. Again, this was written by Jeannie Theobald of Mapleton. And our first story is concerning um, lifeguards for the summer. Potential lifeguards shortage. A new Sioux City water park could negatively impact the availability of lifeguards in the area when it opens in the summer of 2025. Each season, we kind of struggle to find lifeguards. We usually find just enough to cover what we need, says Sergeant Bluff Parks and Recreation Director Tyler Tweet who raised the issue during the December 20th City Council meeting. As we get closer to the pool season and sports start up again, it's tough to keep the pools open as it is. The Sgt. Bluff Pool at 910 Topaz Drive is one of a handful of municipal pools that will likely be competing for staff with Siouxland Splash. A group of local investors plan to build the new Sioux City Water Park at 3820 Highway 75. The water park, which is currently under design by a team of water park consultants, will have a huge slide tower with an iconic slide, lazy river, wave pool, and one of the biggest kid zones in the Midwest. Tweet, who is approaching his third pool season as Parks and Recreation Director, said Sergeant Bluff keeps 20 lifeguards on staff, which allows the pool to operate seven days a week. He said the majority of Sergeant Bluff's lifeguards are high school students. We kind of keep a watchful eye with Sioux City being right up the road there. We heard that a private company is planning to put in a water park. Obviously, with new shiny toys, people are drawn to that, Tweet said. Keeping our staff down here is going to be important to us. With a larger water park, they're going to have to staff quite a few lifeguards. We kind of already compete for lifeguards with Sioux City Parks and Rec, as well as South Sioux's YMCA. Sioux City Parks and Recreation Director Matt Salvatore said his department is evaluating what impact Siouxland Splash might have on the city's ability to recruit and retain lifeguards. I wouldn't say that we are concerned at this point. I think everybody dealt with a lifeguard shortage during the pandemic. We got through it, but yes, we are talking to others in the area, Salvatore said. We are starting to advertise for our lifeguards right now, so we're getting a sense of what our staffing will be like for 2024. But obviously, the impacts won't happen until 2025. Salvatore said staffing improved at Leif Erickson, Lewis, and Riverside Pools after the Sioux City Council approved a wage increase for lifeguards in April 2022. The current pay scale for a lifeguard one is $10 to $13.50 an hour with $12.00 recommended as a starting wage. The range is $10.50 to $14.00 for a Lifeguard two Instructor Guard with $12.50 per hour recommended as a starting wage. Sioux City Parks and Recreation personnel recommended the wage increase in an effort to stave off departures of lifeguards to nearby communities paying $12.00 or more per hour. If the Council had not approved the new pay scale, it's likely the pools would have been forced to reduce operating hours. Salvatore said, We are curious to see what the lifeguard pay will be when the new water park opens. Tweet said his department is evaluating various scenarios, including potentially raising wages to entice lifeguards to Sergeant Bluff, reducing pool hours, or discontinuing Red Cross certified swimming lessons. It's early, but we're just looking at different scenarios of what might mean or what that might look like. Tweet said being a lifeguard is a great summer job for high school students because it teaches them to be responsible not only for themselves, but also the pool's patrons. Salvatore touted the ability to be outside and interact with youth in the community as one of the benefits of lifeguarding. It is a great summer job, he said. It's a very important public safety aspect, especially when it comes to our swimming lesson offerings. A lot of our lifeguards are also instructors. That's a great way to interact with the public and make sure they are staying safe through the proper skills to swim. Whiting to host 40th anniversary screening children of the corn. This summer, Siouxland residents should beware of roving bands of children with farm tools and dead eyes. On Saturday, July 13th, the town of Whiting is hosting an event to mark the 40th anniversary of, film, of the film adaptation of Children of the Corn. Though the movie was framed as being set in Gatlin, Nebraska, it was largely shot in Hornick, Salex, Sergeant Bluff, and Whiting in the fall of 1983 before being released the following spring. The events being organized by Kenny Caperton, who promotes on-set cinema, which allows people to see movies where they were actually filmed. For the anniversary, Caperton said actor Courtney Gaines, who played Malachi, one of the most prominent members of the movie's underage cult, will be doing an autograph signing, Q&A, and photo op by the town flagpole, which is captured in several scenes of Children of the Corn. According to Caperton, it will be the first time Gaines has visited Whiting since the, the filming took place. This is going to be an incredible way to celebrate the 40th anniversary of one of the greatest horror movies of all time, Caperton said in a release from the event. Just remember, Malachi will be watching you, and any unbelievers or profaners of the holy will be sacrificed unto him. He who walks behind the rose seeth all. Along with Gaines' appearance, the anniversary celebration will also include local food vendors and location tours with Children of the Corn historian John Sullivan. A bus tour will bounce around filming locations in Hornick and Salix, and a walking tour will snake through downtown Whiting. Festivities are slated to kick off at 10.30 a.m. with the bus tour, and the given location to gather at is 520 Whittier Street. That tour is scheduled to last until 1 p.m. and then beginning at 7 p.m. there will be an event check-in for general ticket holders. Gaines will be signing autographs until 8.30 p.m. while Sullivan will be giving his downtown downtown tour from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. The flagpole photo op is listed for 8.45 p.m. with a Q&A at 9 p.m. and then the screening of the 1984 film at 9.30 According to Caperton, online tickets for the downtown tour, Q&A, and outdoor screening run $30 and can be used found at myershousenc.com/slash onset cinema. Local Iowa residents can buy $20 tickets, cash only, at Whiting City Hall, and that includes access to the downtown tour, the Q&A, and the outdoor screening. There's an additional add-on ticket for the bus tour. This will now be the third non-consecutive year for an on-set cinema takeover of Whiting. In 2021 and 2022, a number of area residents who appeared as extras in the frill turned out for the event. Sioux City Journal takes home 17 Iowa Newspaper Association Awards. The Sioux City Journal took third place for general excellence among the state's largest newspapers at the Iowa Newspaper Association's 2024 Iowa Better Newspaper Contest Thursday night. The Journal won a total of 17 awards in the the INA's Better Newspaper Contest, including first place for best website, SiouxCityJournal.com reported Nick Hytrek's three-part series on the 2022 fatal police shooting of Michael Meredith and Sergeant Bluff placed first in the Best Feature Story category. Heitrek also placed third in the Master Columnist category. The Journal won second place awards in seven news categories, Best Editorial Pages, Total Newspaper Design, Coverage of Business, Coverage of Education, Coverage of Crime and Courts, and Best Podcast. Editor Bruce Miller and Managing Editor Dave Driesen were honored for the editorial pages. Reporter Caitlin Yamada led the education coverage. Reporter Dolly Butts and Hightrek were honored for the courts and crime coverage, and reporters Mason Doctor, Jared McNett, and Driesen contributed to the business coverage. The latter was for the journal's Streamed and screen Podcast, which features Miller and Terry Lipschitz, was the recipient of the podcast award. McNett was a part of the On Iowa Politics podcast, which took first place for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The journal's third place awards included Best Use of Graphics, Best Feature Pages, and Best Headline Writing. Miller said, It is so rewarding to see the INA rec- the journal during the year of change. The breadth of categories in which we were recognized as we're excelling in a multitude of areas. It reminds us how important it is to give readers the stories they need and want. We are grateful to, to the readers who enable us to do the kind of work we love. The journal also finished third in the best of class advertising category after winning a first place award for best advertising idea for a community project or event and a third place honor for best advertising series of campaign featuring any service or merchandise event. In the General Excellence category, based on the most overall points awarded for first, second, and third place awards in all the contest categories, the Journal placed third behind only the two state's two largest newspapers, the Cedar Rapids Gazette and the Des Moines Register. The Journal finished five points behind the Register who got second place. Overall, the Journal placed ninth in the newspapers Newspaper of the Year race, based on most overall contest points among all papers, regardless of circulation or frequency of publication. The Iowa Falls Times Citizen received the 2024 Newspaper of the Year at the awards ceremony at the Marriott in downtown Des Moines. The Sioux City man who entered Capitol on January 6 denied request. A federal judge has denied the early termination of probation for a Sioux City man convicted of entering the U.S. Capitol during the January 6, 2021 riot in Washington, D.C. District Judge Royce Lamberth said in a Wednesday's ruling that Kenneth Rader is not entitled to an early dismissal because of past noncompliance with terms of his probation. Rader has not established that his conduct warrants early termination because he has not shown compliance with his conditions, let alone changed circumstances or exceptionally good behavior, Lamberth said in the ruling. When filing for the early termination in December, Rader's attorney, federal public defender Brad Hansen, cited an August federal appeals court ruling in which the court ruled that prison plus probation is not an available sentence for petty dismissal misdemeanor charges like the one to which Rader pleaded guilty and therefore was unlawful. Hansen reiterated that stance Thursday. As the DC Circuit ruled, Mr. Rader's initial sentence of both prison and probation was unlawful. Mr. Rader has already served his prison term and more than one year on probation, so we believe that it would be in the best interest of justice to terminate the remainder of his probation. The court disagreed and re-respect that decision, Hansen said in an email to the journal. Hansen said he could not comment on whether he would appeal the ruling. Raider 55, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building and was sentenced in September 2022 to 90 days in jail plus three years probation and $500 restitution. Three other charges were dismissed. He completed his prison sentence and started probation in December 2022. In his ruling, Lambert cited probation violations that included possession and use of a controlled substance associating with a convicted felon without his probation officer's permission and failing to show up for drug testing. In December, his probation officer alleged an additional 15 probation violations. Lambert said, even assuming that the alleged illegal illegality of a sentence is an appropriate basis for a motion of early termination, Rader has not established his entitlement under the statutory factors. Rader was among the hundreds of supporters of former President Donald Trump to protest the results of the November 2020 election in which Joe Biden defeated Trump. The mob gathered outside the Capitol before breaking into the building in an effort to prevent Congress from certifying the Electoral College results, declaring Biden the winner. Within 90 seconds of the mobs breaching the Capitol doors, Rader was among the first wave to enter the building. Once inside, he stopped near the Senate wing door and watched, picking up pieces of glass and plaster as souvenirs before exiting the building three minutes later. After a family member had tipped off the FBI to Rader's participation in the riot, he was arrested on January 20, 2022. We'll now go to a recap of some of the things that are happening in the Iowa legislature in this past week. Iowa, a bill would define man and woman. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill this week that would define man and woman in state law and required transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on some legal documents. Activists stopped, shouted, and chanted outside a committee room Tuesday in opposition to the proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they say would erase transgender Iowans from state code. The bill would allow state agencies and centers to use a person's biological sex to determine services and accommodations. Reynolds said this week it was necessary to protect women's spaces. There will be a public hearing on the bill Monday. Then cannabis oversight regulations floated. Iowa GOP lawmakers moved a bill to give the state more oversight over consumable hemp products or cannabis products derived from hemp. The products, which are legal under federal legislation, can have psychoactive effects similar to, to traditional marijuana. The bill would allow state regulators to set a potency cap on products sold in the state. Lawmakers proposed tuition limits Iowa House Republicans and Democrats proposes dueling legislation to try to limit tuition costs in the state. Republicans want to cap the annual increase in tuition at 3 percent while the Democrats bill proposes a statewide freeze on tuition costs." And then um, there's a, some quotes here. Uh, Representative Brooke Bowden, who's a Republican from Indianola, uh, about a partisan elections bill. Specifically, in the last election, I think we saw a lot of party-affiliated people get involved in a space that we have not seen them get involved in before. And so when you begin down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we are going? And then another quote from Wade Dooley, chair of the Albion Library Board of Trustees. I come from a very rural area. This bill is a train wreck. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for very disastrous consequences if you get an activist city council that starts seesawing on what we they believe for a library to be or not to be. And that's about changes in library boards. And so here's a short about that library thing. Cities could have more control over libraries. A proposal to give city councils more authority over public libraries would bring partisan political decision-making into library operations, including book selection dozens of public library officials and supporters, warned state lawmakers Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The legislator who managed the bill during Thursday's hearing said his goal is to provide elected local officials with more authority over the spending of taxpayer dollars. The bill would eliminate the requirement that a city's voters Approve any proposal to alter the composition, manner of selection, or cha- charge of a library board or its replacement. And then Iowa Teamsters threaten strikes. A Teamsters union in Iowa is calling for rolling strikes across the state in response to a bill that would put more regulations on public employee unions in Iowa and require a public employer to submit a list of employees to state regulators. Teamsters 238 Principal Officer Jesse Case said the bill would effectively end all public sector unions in the state of Iowa. We'll now move to the opinion page beginning with the editorial. Time is right to finish funding Nebraska project, Capital Project. The view from the fifth floor of the Nebraska Capitol is nothing short of spectacular, providing a close-up look at faith, courage, justice, and wisdom at the top of the rotunda and descending looks at the murals, models, and the mosaic medallions on the floor far below. But few of the thousands who visit the state's architectural masterwork have had the opportunity to take in those views, for the fifth floor has been closed to the public since 1986, the final year of the celebration of the building's 50th anniversary. In fact, The fifth floor, as originally conceived by architect Bertram Goodhute 100 years ago, would be the place to experience the building from a great interior overlook. But when the building became crowded, offices were moved there, leading to the closure of the floor to the public. That, however, could change if the legislature appropriates the funds needed to restore the gallery as originally conceived or the fifth floor could remain closed, perhaps forever, if the project is not funded this year. Last year, Senator Rob Clements of Elmwood, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, introduced LB 812 to appropriate $3.4 million for the Office of the Nebraska Capitol Commission to restore the fifth floor gallery during the fifth and final phase of the ongoing seven-year heating, ventilation, and air conditioning project at the Capitol that will, later this year, focus on the remodeling of the tower. The budget that passed in 2023 allowed for only $1.5 million of the total amount needed, so Clements introduced LB 1210 to transfer another $1.5 million from cash reserves for the design and construction needed for the area. That relatively small expenditure 1.5 1.5 million dollars out of a state general fund budget of five billion dollars is likely an all-or-nothing proposition for the restoration of the fifth floor. Providing full restoration funding would allow the work to be done in conjunction with the H- HVAC project. Failing to take advantage of the efficiencies in doing the restoration simultaneously with the tower likely would make the fifth floor project prohibitively expensive. Given that deadline of sorts, appropriating the additional 1.5 million dollars should be a no-brainer for first the Appropriations Committee then the legislature. It would also likely trigger additional fundraising and other efforts by the Nebraska Association of former state legislators to see the fifth floor project which it proposed five years ago to fruition restoring the intended use of the floor and the spectacular view to the Capitol, the state's most iconic building. We now have some letters to the editor and our first one is from Michael Poltash of Sioux City and Michael writes, The journal reports that half of Americans believe Israel has gone too far in its war against Hamas. I agree that the plight of the population of Gaza is terrible. But if Hamas pledges to kill Jews and eliminate Israel, as stated in their written charter and in their actions, Israel must eliminate Hamas now. None of the Israel critics have offered a solution to this problem other than an Israeli ceasefire, which is essentially a surrender by Israel and a guarantee of repeated October seventh attacks, since that is their stated goal. If Hamas would surrender and leave, the suffering of the Gazans would end. How about pushing for that? Let's all remember how this mess started. Hamas knew this war would happen. Why else would they have taken innocent hostages? And again, this was written by Michael Poltash of Sioux City. Our next letter to the editor is from Randall Washburn of Sioux City. And Randall writes, Did the Republican Party get a good deal on Keurig machines? because they've all turned into a bunch of coffee boys for Donald Trump. You know Trump. He's the guy that lost the presidency, the House, and the Senate twice. His latest loss is in his appeal for abusing presidential immunity. You see a president can act like a plain citizen even when he is in office. You know doing illegal things and such. Just ask Dick Nixon's coffee boys. That insurrection thing isn't going away anytime soon. Coffee Boys Better Invest in Some New Keurigs. Again, this was written by Randall Washburn of Sioux City. And our, our next one is written by Roger L. Wilson of Moville. And Roger writes, Former President Trump has never been charged with insurrection, never been tried in a court of law for insurrection, nor found guilty of insurrection. Incredibly, four Colorado Supreme Court judges without a trial, found him guilty of insurrection, thereby removing his name from the state's primary ballot. When did the idea of innocent until proven guilty get thrown out the window of our judicial system? And This was written by Roger L. Wilson of Mulville. We now have a a column written by um, U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra who is a Republican from Hull and represents Iowa's 4th Congressional District. And he writes, According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, nearly 400,000 American children live within the foster care system, 117,000 of whom are waiting to be adopted. At the same time, Iowa alone has lost more than 200 licensed foster homes since 2019, And nationwide, many foster parents forego fostering after only one or two placements. This imbalanced combination of more children waiting to be fostered or adopted and fewer families participating in the foster system exasperates the care crisis impacting rural communities and further diminishes the already small pool of foster families. Compounding the challenges of foster home shortage, some states are falling short of their legal commitment to support foster children and identify foster families. Under Title 4B of the Social Security Act, any state that receives federal funding for foster care services must establish a diligent recruitment plan to outline how they will find, recruit, and retain willing families to foster children. This approach promotes accountability to deliver positive foster care outcomes and keep foster families active and able to receive multiple placements year after year. However, a recent report by HHS found that 34 states received a subpar rating in terms of recruiting and retaining qualified foster parents, while the remaining 16, including Iowa, received strong marks for their work. Ultimately, we want 100% success across all 50 states. That's why I introduced the Recruiting Families Using Data Act, which recently passed the U.S. House of Representatives. This legislation would help states uphold and strengthen their diligent recruitment plans by improving their processes with concrete facts and information for identifying, recruiting, and retaining qualified foster homes my bill also establishes family advisory boards to disseminate best practices highlight financial and emotional obstacles facing foster families and keep foster families who are beating the beating heart of the foster system at the center of systemic changes and improvements by elevating the voices of foster families we can better resolve kinks and enhance outcomes for foster children and the general generous families who care for them. A strong foster care system is life-changing for children who just need a chance in life. These kids, who are often overlooked, have talents and skills to offer to our country and the world that have yet to be seen. By reforming flaws within our foster system, we can unleash these gifts and support vulnerable children who deserve the opportunity to grow up with the support of a loving family. We have tools and policies at our disposal that can make a real difference in the lives of the nearly 400,000 children in the foster system. By passing this legislation and getting it signed into law, I am confident that we can connect more foster children with loving families and make a lasting and positive impact on our country. This was the article written by Randy Feenstra, uh, our uh, U.S. Uh, representative from the Iowa's fourth congressional district. Rock Valley High School Jazz Band shines at Morningside University Jazz Festival. One, two, three, four, ready, play. With that, Rock Valley High School Band Director Drew Paulson kicked off a rehearsal for the school's jazz band prior to a performance at this week's Morningside University Jazz Festival. Hey, nice run through, Paulson said really play to the back of the auditorium. The 15-member group performed three pieces at the festival headquartered at Epley Auditorium on campus, Standar- standards Ain't misbehaving When I Fall in Love and a jump jazz-funk fusion song called Chameleon. Paulson told the group Thursday afternoon, if you do anything today, take a chance and have fun. Take a chance and they can tell you how to do something better. Sixty bands performed over the four-day festival, which ran Tuesday through Friday. The Morningside Festival includes a performance, as well as a clinic, from one of the guest clinicians and adjudicators, according to Morningside's Director of Jazz Studies, Dr. Eric Mahone. For me, it's all about education. I've got people up in the balcony with a recorder who are listening to the bands and getting recorded comments, and then after each band performs, they get to go up and spend a half hour with one of the clinicians, and that's all about jazz education. For me and Morningside University Jazz Studies, the clear priority is music and jazz education, Mahone said. The 2024 clinicians included pianist and Sioux City native Henry Hay and Karen Quinn, um, bass from University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. The Adjudication panel featured Dr. Brian Hannigan from Augustana University, Dr. David Balner from Wayne State College, Dr. Tim Farrell of University of Nebraska Kearney, Jeff Schoning, a trainer, retired music educator, Michael Genslinger, Wayne State College, Dr. Darren Wadley, University of South Dakota, Tiffany Nelson, Humboldt Music Educator, and Ron Sterry, Brooklyn South Brooking, South Dakota music educator. After leaving the stage, several band members shared their feelings on the performance. Matthew Post, a Rock Valley High junior, has been playing alto saxophone since fifth grade. Jazz is my favorite, Post said. I thought it went really, really well. Probably the best yet this season. He admits to getting nervous prior to a performance. Yeah, very nervous. Usually i get a little shaky, a little weak. Today, it went pretty good. For Austin Winia, 15, a freshman at Rock Valley, playing the drums is a family business. My grandma and my dad both did the drums, and my uncle and now my brother does it too. That's his 12-year-old brother, Coulter, has joined in playing the drums. I think it really went well. I think the tempo, we kept tempo good. I think my solos went pretty good, Winia said. Carla Gradilla, a sophomore at Rock Valley, plays a baritone sax. I started with the alto saxophone and switched over to the baritone from jazz, and I stuck with it because I really like the low vibrating sound of it, and I like being a bass and support for the beat of the band. It's a very important role that somebody needs to play. After their session with the adjudicators and clinicians, Paulson said the critiques included using air to give the instruments life, using the proper articulations for the style of the song and watch phrasing in intonation. Mahone said jazz has a very unique place in Iowa. It is just such a strong thing. We have 60 bands coming over four days so they're not strangers to this type of thing. But what I think we offer is that unique is that I am bringing people in that are nationally known. Mahone said an experience like this can spark something in a student. There are so many ways to find new inspiration and a way to get rejuvenated, and we hope that that is happening here, he said. Next for the Rock Valley Heist Jazz Band, district competition in Lamars on Monday and competitions at Augustana and University of South Dakota. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for the weekend of February 10th and 11th. On Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, we will now go to today's obituaries. Ch- Gordon Charles Freud, 93, of South Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, February 1st, at his home. Abiding by his wishes, cremation has taken place and a memorial service was held at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8th at the Morin Becker Hunt Funeral Home with Reverend James Travis as the officiant. Interment will be at a later date in the Dakota City Cemetery. Visitation with the family present was one hour prior to the services on, on Thursday. Gordon was born on May 15, 1930, in Lyons, Nebraska, to Lester and Helga Freud. He graduated from the Lyons, Nebraska High School. Gordon married Nora Levon Bowman on September 1, 1950, in Blair, Nebraska. The family farmed in the Lyons area until 1964 when they moved to South Sioux City. Gordon worked at Sioux Tools for 36 years, and after retiring, he worked part-time at Krager Glass and BNSF Railroad. Gordon loved doing yard work and won Yard of the Month several times. He was mechanically inclined and could fix anything. Gordon was a big fan of the Nebraska Huskers and Dodgers baseball. He loved spending time with his family and his dog Toby and wife of 73 years. Francis Winia, age 92, of Sioux Center, died Wednesday, February seventh, at Sioux Center Health in Sioux Center. Family and friends may gather at 9.30 a.m. on Monday, February 12th at Centerpoint Church in Sioux Center. There will be a prayer service at 10 a.m. followed by the burial in the Memory Garden Cemetery. The memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, uh, February 12th at Centerpoint Church. Arrangements are in the care of the memorial funeral home of Sioux Center. In lieu of flowers or gifts, the Winia family prefers memorials to be directed to Words of Hope, 700 Ball Avenue Northeast, Grand Rapids, Michigan 49503. Johanna Francis Winia was born November 25, 1931 to Frank and Johanna Winia on the family farm near Morris, Iowa. She attended Center Township No. 5 Rural School through the eighth grade and attended high school at the Sioux Center Community School. After graduating in 1951, she was employed as a bookkeeper at Vanderplugs Furniture. In July 1952, she joined the staff at the First National Bank Sioux Center until her retirement. Frances was a member of the First Reformed Church, now known as Center Point Church, where she taught Sunday School for several years. She was also a faithful member of the Rebecca Circle for many years. She was a volunteer instructor for Crossroad Bible Institute, Grand Rapids, Michigan, for several years. She enjoyed traveling by car and tour bus throughout the states and overseas. Her favorite pastimes were reading, embroidering, and counted cross-stitch. Anne Peterson of Ponca, Nebraska, passed away at her home on Wednesday, February 7th. She was 81 years old. The funeral service for Judy, okay, it said Ann, here it says it's Judy A. Peterson, okay. The funeral service for Judy will be held at 1030 a.m. Tuesday, February 13th. Visitation with the family present will be from 5 to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. Monday, February 12th. The location of the visitation and the funeral service will be Salem Lutheran Church in Ponca. Burial will be at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Sioux City immediately following the funeral service. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brothers Funeral Homes in Sioux City. Judy was born to Porter and Elsie Sides in Homer, Nebraska on October 29, 1942. She was the youngest of six children. Many of Judy's fondest childhood memories were of her upbringing on the family farm near Dakota City, Nebraska. Throughout her younger years, Judy attended school in Dakota City and graduated with the class of 1961. She was a valedictorian of her class. From 1961 to 1964, she attended St. Joseph's School of Nursing in Sioux City. On August 28, 1965, Judy was united in marriage to the love of her life, Jerry John Peterson. From this union, the couple's first child, John, was born in 1970. Their second child, Angela, was born two years later. The family resided in South Sioux City until 1975 when they moved to Ponca, where Jerry started his auto body repair and paintings business. Until Jerry's Body Shop permanently closed its doors in 2017, Judy had an active role as its bookkeeper. For several years, she also made countless auto parts and supply gathering trips in the area. Occasionally, worked alongside Jerry when he was short-handed, and helped maintain the buildings which housed this small business. When her children grew older, she stayed busy working at a local grocery store at the Ponca State Park. Weller Plastics in Sioux City, and the M.J. Waldbaum Company in Wakefield. Since her years growing up on the Sides Farm, Julie loved the outdoors and was often found outside tending to her flowers, garden, and other yard projects. She became an avid golfer later in life and thoroughly enjoyed her seasons at the Highland Oaks Golf Course near Ponca, where she was twice a champion in the women's league. Judy also had a love for antique furniture and furniture refinishing, which she taught for a few years as an adult education class. Within her community of Ponca, she contributed as a coach for Little League softball teams, a leader of Brownie and Girl Scout troops, and a member of the Salem Lutheran Church and the American Legion Auxiliary. Judy had an unwavering love of and commitment to her family. In lieu of flowers, please consider a memorial contribution to the Salem Lutheran Church or the American Legion Auxiliary 117 in Ponca. Gary Allen Shaner, 85, died January 31st. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 15th at First Congregational UCC. Visitation with the family will be one hour prior at the church. Burial will be at the Hillside Cemetery in Merrill. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Gary was born March 18, 1938, in McPherson, Kansas, to Royal and Dorothy Shayner. The family moved often, mostly in and around Oklahoma. Gary earned a B.S. in chemical engineering from Rice University in 1961, and a commission in the United States Navy. He earned an MBA from Oklahoma City University in 1968. Gary married Ann Huff on June 10, 1961. They had two daughters. Gary was an entrepreneur and inventor. He began at Shell Oil Company as a petroleum engineer, owned an unpainted furniture factory, sold sporting goods, and designed and built the machinery for his silk screen printing business. His hobbies were vegetable gardening, he was a master gardener, and fishing of all kinds. Gary had many volunteer jobs after retiring at the age of 59. Memorials may be given to the First Congregational UCC or the Dorothy Peacock Nature Center in Gary's memory. Deanna J. Bomar, 85, of South Sioux City, passed away on Wednesday, January 24th. Services will be held at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 24th at First Presbyterian Church of South Sioux City with Pastor Beth Hamilton officiating. Visitation will be at the church one hour prior to the service. A private burial will be held at a later date. Online condolences may be directed to MeyerBro'sChapels.com. Deanna Beaumont was born on June 28, 1938, in Ponca, Nebraska, to Oscar Bakken and Mary Margaret Bakken. They lived on the family farm until she was nine when they moved to South Sioux City. She attended South Sioux City High School and was very involved from an early age. Deanna was exceptionally active in the International Order of the Rainbow for Girls organization, where she later served as a grand worthy advisor for the state of Nebraska. After graduating, Deanna worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield until she married Jack Bomar of Plainview, Nebraska, on November 22, 1958. From this marriage, they had three children, Mary, Karen, and Lynn. When Deanna wasn't busy with her family, you could find her volunteering, socializing, and traveling. Deanna served the First Presbyterian Church in several capacities and was involved in the Order of the Eastern Star and a founding and active member of P.E.O. for over 50 years. She enjoyed playing golf, bridge, and dominoes, as well as cheering on the Nebraska Cornhuskers with Jack. Deanna kept a very busy life, but always prioritized time with her family and friends above all else. She was a true friend to many. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made in her name to First Presbyterian Church of South Sioux City or to Hospice of Siouxland. Deanna's family would like to express a special thank you to the staff members of the care facility in which she resided for the final weeks of her life. She loved and appreciated you and your kindness. The family would also like to thank those who came from near and far to see Deanna, family, friends, Sherry and Melissa of Hospice of Siouxland, and Pastor Beth Hamilton of First Presbyterian Church of South Sioux City. Della E. Delperding, 101, of Kingsley, passed away on Tuesday, February 6, at Kingsley Specialty Care. Funeral services will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February tenth, at First Lutheran Church in Kingsley. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Friday, February 9th at the Johnson-Ernest Funeral Home in Kingsley. The family will be present from 5 to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. Dolores M. Merrill, 94, of Sioux City, passed away Saturday, January 27th. The memorial service is 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 13th at Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Burial will be at the Memorial Park Cemetery. Ronald William Nutt, 82, passed away peacefully at his home in Sioux City Sunday, February 4th. Funeral services will be held at 12.30 p.m. Wednesday, July 3rd at First Lutheran Church in Sioux City with the Rev. Kristen Stangy officiating. Per his wishes, Mr. Nutt has been cremated. The family invites guests to stay for a luncheon reception after the service. There will be a private interment at Kennebec Cemetery in Castana, Iowa, following the luncheon. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brother Colonial Chapel. Mr. Nutt was born July 3, 1941, in Sioux City the eldest son of William Franklin Nutt and Catherine Marie Nielsen Nutt. He lived and attended school in Mapleton, Iowa during his formative years. In 1953, he moved with his family to Sioux City, where he graduated from East High School in 1959. He graduated from Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in 1963 with a B.S. in Business Administration. He later attended Executive Development School at the University of Connecticut and spent three summers at the University of Indiana Graduate School of Savings and Loans. He married the love of his life, Janice Diane Anderson on September 5, 1962, in Rapid City, South Dakota. To this union three children were born, Lori Larie in nineteen sixty three, Leanne Le- Liliani in nineteen sixty five, and William Franklin Bowe in nineteen seventy two. After college, he and his wife relocated to Honolulu, Hawaii, where he served in the United States Navy. He held the rank of Lieutenant at the Naval Communications Station. He later served in the Pacific Recovery Forces during the Gemini space flights. Upon discharge from the Navy in 1968, he returned to Sioux City with his family to join Home Federal Savings and Loan as a loan officer. He later served as CEO of Home Federal's Equity Service, Residential Construction and Land Development, rising to the position of President of Home Federal in 1980. He retired in 1986. Mr. Nutt honorably served in the Iowa House of Representatives 76th General Assembly from 1995 to 1997. He most notably served on the Health and Human Rights Appropriations Subcommittee, the Civil Rights Committee, the Technology Committee, and the Capital Punishment Subcommittee. Mr. Nutt was an active partner in Valley Ventures, a collection of family real estate partnerships, which included apartment complexes and mobile home parks throughout the Siouxland area. During his life, he was an active business and community leader. Serving as president of the Sioux City Exchange Club, the Sioux City Board of Realtors, the Sioux City Mariners Swim Club, the Sioux City Northside Little League, as well as the director of the Sioux City Industrial Council. Mr. Nutt was a member of First Lutheran Church, the Sioux City Country Club, and a legacy member of Kingsway Golf Club in Lake Susie, Florida. He loved playing golf and was an avid bridge player. He always enjoyed a competitive game of gin rummy with his sons-in-law. Among his hobbies were gardening, fishing, and hunting. He was also known for his gift of storytelling, his quick wit, and his sense of humor. He enjoyed cooking and entertaining. He and his wife hosted many many memorable parties, both in Sioux City and in Lake Susie, where they wintered in their retirement years. In lieu of flowers, a memorial has been established in his name at First Lutheran Church of Sioux City. And that concludes the obituaries for today. Uh, we now move to an entertainment story about a former Spencer Iowa radio announcer who has won an Emmy for voice over work. John Arman knows exactly how Susan Lucci felt. Just like the longtime star of TV's All My Children he had plenty of Emmy nominations and losses next to his name. However Armand, similar to the woman who made Erica Kane a national icon, eventually emerged victorious. After nine nominations, the former Northwest Iowa broadcaster won an Emmy for his narration in CBS's One Jets Drive, a series which chronicled the NFL season of the New York Jets. The people who say that it is an honor just to be nominated don't know what they're talking about, Armand said a few weeks following the January 16th ceremony. Winning is definitely more fun. The road hasn't always been easy for Armand, a native Southern Californian who worked as a staff announcer at Spencer, Iowa, KICD AM Radio from 1996 to 2010. I was interested in a career in radio, but Los Angeles was not a good place to break into the business, Armand explained. L.A. represented one of the largest radio markets in the country, and once people landed a good gig, they would never leave it. Because of that, he began sending audition tapes to small radio stations across the country. The folks at KICD heard my tape and took a chance on me, Armand recalled. Before I knew it, I was on a plane to Iowa. Unfortunately, he landed during a historic cold snap in January. When I left San Diego, it was 81 degrees, Armand remembered. When I arrived in Spencer, the temperature was 27 below. Here I was in a leather jacket, the heaviest piece of clothing that I owned, thinking this was either the greatest adventure or the biggest mistake of my life. Luckily, he was able to adjust to both Iowa weather as well as the state's slower pace. Growing up, I was so used to being closer to everything, Armand said. That wasn't the case in Spencer. If we wanted to go shopping, it meant an all-day trip either to Sioux City or Sioux Falls. When Spencer finally got his own Super Walmart, it was a big deal, he said, chuckling at the memory. It seriously cut down on my driving time. Yet Armand was charmed by his new life. Two of my three kids were born in Iowa, he said. It was a great place to raise a family. Eventually, Armand left Spencer to host a morning radio show in Portland, Maine, before moving back to the West Coast. He said, despite having plenty of on-air experience, Los Angeles was a tough radio market for me. Instead, I devoted my energy to voiceover work. This has proven to be a good career choice for Armand, whose voice can be heard advertising everything from Toyotas to Target to Dunkin' Donuts. He said, the nice thing about voiceovers is that, in most cases, you don't need to do it in a professional studio. Voiceovers nowadays can be done at home and at the convenience of the artist. That is how Armand voice-tracked his Emmy Award-winning work on One Jet's Drive, which he has been doing for the past few seasons. It is also how he provided the narration for upcoming documentaries produced as part of the History Channel's ongoing That Built series. The shows that worked on involved entertainers who've made a significant influence in America, Armand said. Looking back at his career, Armand is pleased with the start he got in Northwest Iowa. In fact, he credited his KICD experience as his first big break. Now Armand has an Emmy to add to his shelf at home. He said with a laugh, well, what's better than winning one Emmy? Winning two Emmys, of course. Now I want to have a pair. We'll now move to uh, Dear Abby and the first letter. My husband looks at pornography. I find it disgusting and it turns me off. I feel that if he has to look at it, it means I'm not good enough for him. I don't believe his excuse of it has nothing to do with you. When I try to tell him how it makes me feel, he becomes indignant and turns the conversation around to something he doesn't like about me to take the focus off himself. He doesn't watch porn around me, but he gets pop-up ads on his phone all the time, so I assume he looks at it frequently. I've never even seen notifications suggesting he belongs I'm just, sorry. I have even seen notifications suggesting he belongs to a website where he can chat with women, although he says he has no idea why he gets them. I'm not stupid. I don't know anyone else with this kind of issue. I haven't been able to have sex with him lately knowing this is going on. I don't have plans to leave him over this, but what can I do? Sign turned off in Washington. And Abby's response, realize that your husband's appetite for porn really has nothing to do with your level of attractiveness and everything to do with his own appetites. Next, and this is equally important, please seek a referral to a licensed psychotherapist who can help you to rebuild your damaged self-esteem. Your husband is far from the only man who enjoys X-rated entertainment, and many couples view it together. The chat rooms, however, are another matter. Perhaps your husband can explain that to you during some of the sessions with your therapist. It might be more effective than him becoming critical and accusatory when you attempt to try to explain how his behavior affects you. Of this, I am sure. Denying sex to your husband not only won't improve your relationship, but it will further erode it, and I don't recommend it. Dear Abby, Our only son, who is 32, and his wife are expecting their first child. They have been married two and a half years and relocated to Florida. We followed him down from Michigan because he's our only child and bought a home about 20 minutes from him. He informed me that he wants me to be the primary babysitter after the baby is born, but after being here a year, I recently acquired a new job that I really want. I don't know what to do. He expects me to be the babysitter. The baby is due in a few months, so what do I do? Signed, Grandma to be in Florida. And the Abby responds, I am troubled that you use the word informed rather than asked. Tell your son and his wife now that you will not be available to be full time babysitting, so they should start making other arrangements. If there is time in your schedule so you can give them a break, outline when it will be, every other weekend perhaps. Do not allow yourself to be guilted into doing more than is comfortable, or you may find yourself chained to a pen until your grandchild is ready for high school. And that does it for today's reading of the paper for uh, the weekend of February 10th and 11th, the Sioux City Journal. I'm Dogna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.